You're listening to the Race Wide Open Podcast. Welcome into episode two of the Race Wide Open Podcast. I'm your host, Rusty Gregory, and Race Wide Open, if you haven't joined us before, is all about giving you the motorsport news and stories that you won't hear about anywhere else. Make sure you subscribe and check in with racewideopen.com regularly to stay updated with all the latest news and information. On today's show, we've got one of the young guns of Australian drag racing, and he's the most recent first-time winner in a professional class, with young Daniel Reid coming up shortly. But before we get to Daniel, let's check out our race highlights. Since our last episode dropped, it's been a seriously busy period for sprint car racing, with the grand annual Sprint Car Classic and the Australian title in successive weeks at Warner Bulls Premier Speedway. The Classic was won by US star Aaron Reitzel in what was a pretty incredible run of form in the Salem Motorsports number 87. After winning the feature on the preliminary night, night one, uh, and taking home $40,000 for the win in the feature to boot. Aussies Brock Hallett and former Classic winner Lockie McHugh also rounded out the podium, which was maybe a sign of things to come for the Aussie title the following week, and just quietly it showed just how much of a resolve young Lockie McHugh has after regrouping from what was a mammoth crash at Borderline Speedway only a few nights prior. All of the racing over the summer really leads into that one race that all of the Australian drivers cherish. That is the Australian title, which was held over two nights at the same venue, Warnables, Premier, Speedway, and it kicked off on Australia Day where James Inglis, West Aussie James Inglis, took what was probably the biggest victory of his racing career so far, winning the preliminary feature. Challenging track conditions faced the drivers on Saturday night, though, after a long delay in the Victorian late model title feature race uh, and the subsequent rain shower that came while the sprint cars were on the dummy grid, it completely reshaped the way the racetrack had developed up until that point of the night. The feature race, as a result, was fast. Man, it was fast. It was an all-out war that just went green flag to checkered flag, uninterrupted by any stoppages or yellows. Lockie McHugh and the outgoing Aussie champion Jock Goodyear proved once again why they are the standout form drivers at the moment, with only Jamie Veal, another former title holder, able to split them. It was a credit that every driver in the field was able to race clean on such a juiced-up super-fast track without any yellows. A great example of the level of the talent that's currently on show in Australian sprint car racing. But I've got to say a massive congratulations to young Lockie McHugh, who really just showed how good he is. Uh, He gets out there on just about any type of racetrack. He can run high, he can run low, and he puts on a show for the fans, and he's a super popular winner, and he will be carrying the Australian number one for the next 12 months. Big congratulations to him and his team. Switching over to the straight line now and the Australia Day Nationals at Sydney Dragway was unfortunately cursed with weather on both ends of the spectrum blisteringly hot on Friday with persistent rain on Saturday enough to halt proceedings to the point that they actually cancelled the remainder of the event. For Top Fuel, Pro Alcohol, Pro Mod and Pro Bike, there was supposed to be two championship rounds over the two days but the rain meant that only one set of trophies was handed out. In top fuel, the Rapisada Autosport International juggernaut just keeps rolling on with Wayne Newby and Damien Harris meeting in the final round for the second racing succession with Newby taking the win in that one. It was a massive effort from the Rapisada team fielding four cars at this event for Newby, Harris, Shane Olive and three-time world champion Larry Dixon, although Larry's car was sidelined on Friday due to electrical gremlins. I understand they thought they had the problem fixed for Saturday's race day, but unfortunately never got to test it due to the weather. 
It was impressive from the Nitro Dragsters, given the blisteringly hot conditions that they were faced with. The first round of racing was one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen for a long, long time. The track temp was over 135 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot, let me tell you. And multiple cars knocked out low 3.9 second runs in the heat of the day. It was fantastic racing, and it was a credit to all the top fuel teams. And just a, a really good example of the level of professionalism that these teams are getting to these days. In Pro Mod, Zoran Gadjik was the giant killer. Uh, he knocked out the championship leader and the number one qualifier, Craig Burns, in the final round to take home the gold Christmas tree, while Daniel Reed took down championship leader Russell Mills in Pro Alcohol in the final. Pro Bike had some very notable performances, but the final round was between the two quickest bikes on the day, West Australian-based Ryan Learmont and Queenslander Luke Crowley. Crowley took the win with a 7.12 second run on what was the quickest pass of the event in the final, capping off a pretty remarkable performance for the multi-time champion. Top door slammer had a rough start to qualifying with Matt Abel unfortunately having a parts malfunction just off the start line. The car shedded the left rear wheel and unfortunately hit the wall almost head on. And I've got to say the replays that were floating around uh, on the internet, on Facebook, social media and also on 7 Plus did not do justice as to how hard that car hit the wall. Uh, it was almost head on before it erupted into flames. The great news was that Matt got out of the car under his own power. Uh, he was taken to hospital for treatment. Fortunately, was back at the racetrack the next day, and that is a real shame for a team that's had absolutely no luck over the last couple of years. Uh, Matt rebuilt that car, and uh, after taking a tumble in the sand trap over at the Perth Motorplex late last year, so to see that happen to them again, uh, it's just heartbreaking for them. But they're tough races, and I'm sure they'll be back later on this season. Once again, Russell Taylor proved that he is a man on a mission. He qualified number one with a 5.70 ahead of John Zapier. Uh, that was a great Great race in the second round of qualifying. Those guys were side by side. It looked like Zapier's car just went away a little bit at the top end of the racetrack, and he qualified second with a 5.81. But ultimately, the rain would win on the weekend with no racing taking place on Saturday. Pro Stock saw Chris Soldata sneak the number one spot away from Rob Deckett. In the last session of qualifying, his 7 0 was enough to take the number one spot in conditions that were not very conducive to Pro Stock racing. The air was ridiculously bad. Uh, it was around 4,000 feet, really high water grains, lots of humidity. Uh, those cars were really struggling to breathe and struggling to make power. The naturally aspirated 400 cubic inch small block engines, but 7.00 nothing to sneeze at and uh, really does set up the rest of the series for Pro Stock. I think we're going to have a good race once we see some of the other names that we've been missing so far in the Pro Stock field later on this season. That does wrap up our race highlights. Next up, we have got third-generation drag racer, Daniel Reed, who has got a hell of a story to tell, from being born into a drag racing family dynasty to taking his first-ever professional win at Sydney Dragway last weekend. Stay tuned. This is going to be a good one. You're listening to the Race Wide Open podcast. Well, joining me on the Race Wide Open podcast today, he is a face that is familiar to a lot of people in drag racing, uh, but not necessarily in the seat. Usually he's doing the start line interviews with me down there over the last couple of years. Daniel Reed, mate, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. No, thank you very much, Rusty. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, mate. Mate, um, let's talk about, I want to talk about everything. 
on this on this podcast, not just about the win, not just about what's happened over the last couple of months, but about everything uh, to do with drag racing and, and your family to do with drag racing because you really were born into a drag racing dynasty. For anyone who doesn't know, tell us a little bit about exactly how we got to this point. Uh, yeah, I guess it all started back in, I think it was like the 1960s, grandfather Jim, uh, he started – yeah, basically he started it all. Um, was at the first race at Castlereagh, um, built a car for that race meeting and uh, he never looked back. Um, he basically kept racing all through the 60s, 70s and, uh, yeah, the late 70s, early 80s. He started handing over the driving to Dad. Um, and sorry, I even missed a bit there, uh, probably through the 60s and early 70s, grandfather, grandmother, Nelma. Uh, did some driving as well. Um, and then, yeah, the late 70s, early 80s, Dad started taking over. Um, obviously, around that same time, he met Mum as well. So uh, Mum started racing around the same sort of times. Um, and then, yeah, basically, Dad kept racing uh, all through the 80s, Mum and Dad, 80s and 90s. Um, and then, yeah, I sort of got my license in, yeah, 2000 ran about that mark and uh, did a little bit of racing myself in Supercharged Outlaws. Um, and it's around about that time I met my wife, Fiona, who uh, yeah, who was uh, helping me on the crew. And, um, yeah, she later started driving her own car as well. And you talk about everybody in the family being involved, and it is literally everyone has driven a race car at some point or another. You talk about... Your grandfather, Jim, Nelma, your grandmother, your mum, your dad, your wife comes from a racing family as well. This really is what you do as a family, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. We don't know anything different. Um, yeah, we've lived and breathed it all our life, grown up with it. Um, like, you know, dad and Jimmy, um, or, you know, pretty well up to now, they wouldn't have missed a season since, you know, probably the early 80s, I reckon. So, um, yeah, to be racing every single year for the last, what's that, 44 years at least, I reckon. Um, yeah, it's, uh, basically it's yeah, it's something we've done all our lives. Was there any ever thought about you going into something else? Did you ever say, hey, I want to have a go at go-karting or I want to have a go at circuit racing, turn some corners? Was that ever an option? Uh, yeah, definitely. I had plenty of options there. Um, it was obviously easier to stick along the drag racing route um only because you're already at the racetrack so i uh i was unfortunate not to have a junior dragster um back when i was at that right age they were quite slow and dad sort of talked me out of it and just uh, just wait till you're 17 and just go straight and do a modified or something like that so um yeah back i mean i had motorbikes growing up um Never did go-karting, but, yeah, definitely motorbikes, dirt bike riding and all that sort of stuff was definitely um, a hobby. Um, but, uh, yeah, never got into anything like Yeah. Is it? Do you feel any pressure to, to stay in drag racing and to be involved? Or is it one of those things that you just say, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoy going racing with the family and this is what I want to do? Pretty much that, yeah. I don't have any feel any pressure whatsoever. Um, no, it is just something... I enjoy, um, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm probably not as diehard as dad and, and definitely not as diehard as Jimmy. Um, Jimmy spent every last penny he had on that race car. 
you know, poor old Nelma didn't get a kitchen for 50 years because um, every every last dollar he had went into those race cars, you know. So um, dad's probably a little bit more. He likes, you know, a little more luxuries than what uh, old Jimmy does. So he, he sort of balances, but he's still a, still quite diehard. Um, I'm, yeah, less again. I, um, yeah, I don't like uh, spending my money as as easy, so um, I'm happy to I'm happy to go work for someone or um or yeah help people out wherever it comes to and just spend a little bit of money, but not to the extent of uh, Group One and and top alcohol. Let's talk about when you first jumped into the driver's seat because obviously, going from a crew member position where you know everything about the cars, you help tune them, you help your dad work on them, you you basically know every single part on the car, what every part does. How do you transition from from a crew member who knows everything about them to jumping in the in the driver's seat and going, okay, I've got all these experts around me, all the different members of the family that have all driven cars at, at certain points. How do you block that out and say, no, this is the way I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to go about my racing. Uh, yeah, it's uh, because you've worked on it. I guess you've got a good understanding of what you want from a driver and what you expect from a driver. Um, so, yeah, there's... There's a lot of times when I've looked at data and just gone, if only the driver had done this or that, um, you know, it would have been a better run or a faster run, you know. So um, you definitely have high expectations of a driver after being a crew chief. So you sort of, you know what needs to be achieved. So you, you do um, set the bar pretty high for yourself. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely working on it. Definitely uh, makes you a better driver without a doubt. You understand the um yeah what's needed how did it come about this season because obviously over the last couple of years you've been doing some laps in the the family alcohol funny car you've got your license you've been doing some testing in the days leading up to some of the events how did it come about that steve was going to jump out of the seat this season and and you were going to jump in for the first time i've been thinking about it and toying with the idea for quite a few years now um we've you know, basically, he, um, we basically wanted to be successful. We didn't want to throw me in the seat and go backwards, you know, which it was always going to be, you know, like dad's got whatever we got, 40, 50 years of experience of driving these things. There's no way I'm going to jump in the car and do a better job than him, you know. So um, it was the plan was to try and do as many laps as we can, testing for a year or two years or three years, whatever it took. Um, to get me up to speed, basically, and then um, so that when I did jump in the car, we were competitive straight off the bat. Um, it probably happened a little bit earlier than I wanted to. Um, Dad won the championship, and he sort of kind of thought, well, that's a pretty good time to hand the reins over. Um, so, but um, but he's not, you know, he's not finished. He's still got some uh, goals he wants to tick off, and and uh, yeah, and basically, he still wants to get back in the seat from time to time. So, um, yeah, we'll. Uh, We'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. He hasn't mentioned the word retirement as yet. It's just been Daniel's going to be driving this season. I'm going to be outside the car, but there's never been any mention of this is it. I'm done. He, he's you said he's still got unfinished business. What is that? Oh, I mean, he's got goals. He'd love to race in the US. Um, whether he achieves that or not, I don't know. Um, he's got a little bucket list of. He'd love to. He'd love to race two cars. I think. Um, we've got the drags are sitting there. Obviously, it's very dependent on funds and parts and and crew. And there's a lot 
going there. Um, I don't think he should worry about it. Uh, Mum de- definitely doesn't think he should worry about it. Um, but yeah, that's that's his own little personal goal. I think he would like to do one meeting at least with two cars. But um, we'll see what happens. See if that eventuates or not. But um, he definitely wants to jump back in the seat again. He's um, uh, he sort of made a promise to Jimmy when he passed away that he would take him for a, take his ashes for a, a drive down the track. So that's um, definitely one thing he's, he's going to do in the near future. So, yeah. Family really is a huge thing for your, your race team, but it's not just the family that are a blood family. You've also got some crew members that have been part of your team for a, a long, long time, and they basically are family, aren't they? They've had a lot to do with the success of the team. Tell us about you know how important it is having a crew that stays together. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that goes for probably any team or even any business. You know, if you've got some good staff and good people around you, it helps with your success, the overall success of the company or the team or whatever it is. So you can always tell a good team by how they churn through um, crew members or crew chiefs or whatever that might be, you know. So um, I probably learned a lot of that. from like Roland Dane was big on that, basically back at, in the V8 supercars. You know, you can tell the success of a, of a team by, um, yeah, their employees. Um, so, yeah, we have... Um, Stevie Jack, who's been with us for 30 years, you know, so um, 30 years. And then um, Juggy, he's Jason, he's uh, he's been with us for 25 years. So they're real integral parts of the team. Um, we all sit down before a meeting, get a plan together on, on tune-up plans. You know, we all listen and all have input on what we're going to do before the weekend even starts. And, um, and yeah, and then, yeah, basically... To have someone working on the cars that you trust uh, gives you a lot of a confidence boost. You mentioned Roland Dane then. Um, a lot of people probably don't realise your your background in terms of what you did before you jumped into the driver's seat, and this is going back a few years now. Um, tell our listeners what your history is with, with Roland Dane and Triple Eight and, and obviously what you did over there. Uh, yeah, so I worked, with, um, worked for KRE, so Kenny... Kenny McNamara, who did all, does all the engines for, um, yeah, did Triple Eight's engines for quite a few years there when I worked for him, and uh, we basically serviced Triple Eight and all their requirements that they needed at the race meetings and all sort of stuff. So I did a lot of travelling around with the team. Um, yeah, I got a lot of respect for Roland. He's um, one of the smartest businessmen I've seen out there, and that obviously proves that's why he's been so successful in V8 supercars, and um, definitely. My time there, I definitely learned a lot from him and, and all the engineers and stuff like that. We uh, yeah, worked beside for yeah, quite a few years. Did you learn much in, in the supercars world as far as transferring across to drag racing? Because I know you went from, from that world into crew chiefing on a very different type of car, a door slammer, uh, for a couple of years as well. Did you take anything from, from supercars across to drag racing? Definitely. Uh, definitely a lot of... Uh, like way of thinking basically the way you look at something um learning what the car's telling you not just uh sort of guessing and assuming you know you, know, you need to do a, a hard evident evidential test basically to to uh, know if that was the right thing to do or not um the right direction to move um and yeah basically a lot of yeah the engineers are just next level and you know very smart people and i learned a lot of definitely a lot of them on how to you know, how to tune a vehicle. 
Did, was there any unfinished business in, in terms of that side of motorsport or do you ever see yourself going back there? Uh, V8 Supercars, no, not really. I think I've had my time there. Um, I definitely enjoyed it and I'd, I would like to go back there, but it's a very demanding um, sport, takes up all your weekends and, and all your nightlife. It's a perfect um, single man's gig when you haven't got a family and you haven't got kids to go to sports days and all that sort of stuff, you know, so it was perfect back in that era. Um, but now, um, yeah, my focus is on you know, family life and, and, you know, different, you know, goals, I guess you could say we have. So, but uh, no, that's not, um, the crew chiefing was definitely a, a, um, a goal I never really ticked. We never were overly successful in door slammer. Um, I would have liked to have been a lot more than what we were than what we were but um yeah it is what it is and and we're having uh similar success me and dad work well as together as a team you know i'm, I'm quite aggressive and he's quite um calm i guess and, and mild with his tune-up changes so we tend to meet somewhere in the middle and um it's been it's working quite successfully talk about crew chiefing for a minute because you know it takes a very different mindset to be a crew chief than what it does to be a driver especially when it's someone who owns a team who's in the driver's seat um obviously worked with Stuart Bishop for a lot of years on on that team and and had a fair bit had a, had some success i think you might be selling yourself a little bit short there you did have some success with that team but obviously you say there's some stuff that you have unresolved what what sort of stuff are you talking about oh uh, yeah i mean like the like with Dorsam, I mean, we were successful there for a little period, and then we sort of, you know, dropped off the off the radar again. Um, we got, we, yeah, towards the end there, we built a brand new car that was, um, I was, you know, really confident with, really keen to uh, see its full potential, and unfortunately, it sort of cut got cut a little bit short. Um, but uh, yeah, I would have liked to have been running up the pointy end of the field, you know, for you know. But like it's it's kind of easy to do it for a year, but you need to sort of prove yourself and be able to do it for you know four or five years. Or like a John Zapier and Victor Brace have done it, you know, being a dominant force in a class, I think is you know definitely uh, would be a box that I would have liked to have ticked in, especially in Dorsam and as a crew chief. You talk about dominant sort of streaks in the sport, and and. The family has obviously had some dominant streaks over the years. You know, you've won multiple championships with Steve in the seat. You've almost won a championship with your mum in the seat as well. It was only a, a very uh, uh, unfortunate um, end to that championship chase. But there was always one guy that was over in the other lane and a guy who was always sort of standing in the way of more success. And I'd make the argument that if Gary Phillips wasn't around, Steve Reed would probably be one of the most successful races in terms of race wins and championships that we would have ever seen in this country. What's it like racing against a guy like Gary Phillips? Oh, yeah, it's definitely good. I mean, he he set the bar. You know, he's the, he's the one you got to chase and um, he's... You know, he's proven to be so good because he's so meticulous with his servicing at, back at the workshop, you know, and and in that and it, you know, in some ways it's it's a it's obviously it's a credit to him, but in some ways, you know, it's easy to do when you're full time and that's your only focus. Um, a lot of people haven't been, you know, being blessed with that being able to be in that situation. They tend to be doing it on the weekends or over night time and stuff like that. So therefore shortcuts and you know and, and and not as meticulous workmanship tends to happen. Um, that's probably the situation we've been in over the years, you know. So, and when we ran the two cars, once again, that was even harder. Um, you know, corners were cut more, and we didn't. We ran 
parts longer than we should have and all that sort of stuff. So that sort of, you know, sometimes, um, you know, ruins some potential success there. Um, Gary's, you know, for years and years has has uh, gone about it in a very professional and meticulous way and that's, you know, it's proven in his success. And it's funny you say that because between your dad, Steve, and Gary, I don't think there's been too many other people who have won an alcohol championship in the last sort of 20 years. Um, it's it's pretty incredible that the rivalry that, that your family has with the Phillips family. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we go way back. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember carrying Shane around on my shoulders when he was like probably three years old, you know, and babysitting him and, and stuff like that. And now to see him um, up there racing, you know, with in the dragster and being so successful himself, um, not only as a crew chief, but as a driver as well, you know, it's good to see. And, um, yeah, we've grown up beside each other, you know, all the whole family, basically, Jimmy and Gary being friends, dad and Gary, you know, me and Shane, we've all been friends and uh, grown up together and basically in uh, – yeah, been around each other for a long time and have uh, an immense respect for each other. There's always another generation coming through, though, isn't there? And, you know, different ideas and different ways of thinking. And, and the guy that I want to get to next is, is Russell Mills and the funster uh, and the various versions of that that he's had over the years. Just when you think that there's no room left for innovation in drag racing, you see something like that come out. What was your first thoughts when you saw that car come out? It's sort of part dragster, part funny car, a little bit of altered thrown in there, some streamliner as well. For anybody who doesn't know, go and look it up, look up photos of it because it is a, a wild bit of kit. What were your first thoughts when you saw that thing come out? Uh, it's probably a little bit of fear that, uh, yeah, he's uh, taken advantage of the rules and he's going to run away with it. Um, so, But, no, it's it's great to be – looking outside the box, you know. Um, I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again, you know, a lot of Australian drag races are just cut and paste from America, basically. Um, and it makes sense, like we're guilty of it. Um, the cheapest form of R&D is to copy someone. Um, so you find the guy that's running the fastest and you run the same tyre as what he's got and the same chassis and the same supercharger, you know, that saves so much money in R&D. So, but Russell hasn't done that. He's uh, gone out there and he's looked at the rule book and he's studied it and and uh, done some sums on a piece of paper and uh, figured out that he, he reckons he can go faster if he does it a different way to what the Americans done. And I love that. You know, that's uh, fantastic to see. It's great for the sport to have some sort of diversity, you know, something different, um, something innovative, you know. So I, I think it's great. I mean, I've, I've wanted to build a proper top alcohol altered for years, you know, sort of going down the same path you know it'd be uh, great to do so but um, what he's done he's actually yeah gone out and done it and uh yeah it's, it's a real credit to him let's talk about last weekend because obviously pretty important weekend for your career obviously there's a lot of gold christmas trees in the workshop but none with your name on it now there is one in a professional ranks um that's got to be a good feeling when you go out and win your first professional event in your first season yeah, definitely. Yeah, yep. Um, I probably had the expectations on myself that I need to get something soon, if you know what I mean. The car was there, the car's proven package. It was all up to me. And um, as long as I did my job right, that was the gold Christmas tree was going to come sooner or later. Um, so I wasn't, you know, super fussed on that. Um, probably the, the, the main goal would be to try and uh, call back Russell for the championship. 
Uh, we've got a lot of work to do, and especially if we, we've lost tail and benders around, and that was some potential points. And um, and depending on what happens with the the second round of Sydney, um, hopefully we get that back and gives us another chance to claw back a few more points on Russell. But uh, for the team's sake, I'd love to see them, you know, get another championship. You know, that's you know what it's all about. Did the red light in the final at the first round of the championship, did that spur you on at all? Because I think it was like a double O three red, three thousandths of a second, or it was close. Did that sort of burn you coming into this event? A little bit, yeah. It was definitely in the back of my mind when I had a double O nine in the second round. Um, coming into the final was probably one of the hardest things because you, you, you don't want to slow yourself down to you know run a point one. And you obviously don't want a red light because that throws the whole thing out out the window. So um, there was a lot of pressure on me to try and yeah to yeah basically basically make amends for last meeting. Um, we did slow the clutch pedal down to try and slow the car down and not uh, react as quick. Um, and which that's what caught us out last meeting. I didn't expect to be red lighting. That was the last thing. You know, I think I cut an O forty light in first round and to me that felt like a killer light and I wasn't going to get any better you know so to go red in the final come was a complete surprise um so so yeah but it was definitely slowed the car down it was definitely in the back of our mind this meeting um to not red light and be too quick basically and uh yeah the 009 was a bit of a scare in the second round but um yeah luckily I just uh focused on staging as shallow as possible and doing nothing different and uh hoping that that was going to be enough to slow it down to uh, cut a decent line. It was a pretty cool battle between yourself and Russell all weekend because I think the furthest apart that you were in any session was like three or four hundredths of a second. Um, You guys were always number one and two in terms of how the quickest of the session. Um, And then for you guys to meet in the final round, and I think it was only like 47 thousandths of a second or something, in the final round it was a great way to, to finish off the race. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, it's great for the spectators to, you know, have that uh, close racing. Um, it, it's great. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, we need more of it, you know. I'd love to see, you know, Chris Hargraves and and um, and Wayne Price and John Canooley. I'd love to see them, you know, get back up into, into those 50s and 40s and and, uh, and really put it to us and really put on a good show for the crowd. It's, you know, that's what we're all here to do. There's a fair bit of youth coming through at the moment in drag racing. When you, you look across the uh, all the different classes, not just pro alcohol, but there's a lot of young guys that are, are starting to make their mark as I guess some of the more experienced drivers are stepping out of the seat, yourself included, Chris Hargrave. You know, what does that do, for, I guess, for the future of the sport in terms of setting it up for success over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Oh, without a doubt, you, you always need um, new blood coming through. Doesn't matter what industry you're in. Um, basically, yeah, it's fantastic for the sport. Um, yeah, like you say, Chris Hargrove is a great racer. He doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves. He's a good, really good driver. Um, yeah, and like I say, you got some of you yeah, door slammer. It's good to see a little bit of a change in the guard. To tell you the truth, you know. Um, yeah, I think the spectators all like to see some new blood come through and um, and uh, finally they're sort of getting that. Now, you're obviously a driver now, uh, but you're also husband of driver uh, with Fiona's racing as well. Uh, she races Supercharged Outlaws for any of our listeners that don't know. Um, as a husband, what are you like as a spectator standing on the start line watching your wife go down the racetrack? 
Uh, yeah, I think I'm okay. Um, um, I just look, want to see her succeed, basically, um, like anything. You want to see all your family and friends succeed and be as successful as possible. So um, I just – my focus is on giving her the best car possible and giving her the best tools and um, and then basically just, yeah, hope, hope for the best. And, um, and, yeah, I mean, she does extremely well. Um, we sort of haven't done many laps in the last few years. Sort of kids have sort of slowed that up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, that and, you know, the sport's like – you can't beat laps, so especially in die your own racing, you know you have to be doing it every week to to get some consistency. Um, so yeah, hopefully soon we can you know, get you know get out there cutting some more laps again, and and that success will come with that. So from here on, looking at the rest of the season, obviously you're planning on doing all the rounds of the NDRC Pro Alcohol Championship. But looking a little bit further, have you looked past this season or is it just a matter of see what comes, see how it goes and, and sum it up at the end of the year? Yeah, pretty much. That was the plan at the start of the season was basically Dad was going to step aside, let me do this season um, and see how that goes. So, you know, like like anything, I guess, yeah, we'll get to the Winter Nationals and we'll see what next year's calendar looks like and what next year's budget looks like and um, we'll make some decisions then on, on what we'll, where we'll travel and, and how many of the rounds we'll do. Um, I'm sure Dad, he'll be keen to try and do all of them. Um, he always is. He tries to make it work one way or the other. So, um, But, yeah, that'll be the plan. We'll just suck it and see until after the end of the championship and, uh, and we'll go from there. Now, the Winters is always a big race, the end of the season. And a question that's always sort of uh, I've wondered about with some of the professional races, especially the ones that grew up around it, would you rather have a championship or would you ha rather have a Winter Nationals win? Because the two things are there's a lot of races that have got championships and there's a lot of races that have got Winter Nationals wins, but to have both of them, that's, uh, that's a big choice to make. Which one would you prefer? Uh, yeah, it's tough. Um... I've always been a championship person myself. Um, Dad's always just been a winner nationals or just a a race. Um, he's happy just to go out and win, focus on that one race and win that one race, and and uh, he's happy with that. I'm more big picture sort of person and prefer to plan and try and chase down the championship. So to me, definitely the championship would be my you know the, the eye on the prize. Just um, I've got to mention. Um, Daughters Abigail and Michaela, they got a junior dragster as well. So hopefully they'll be. Uh, we'll have. A, we'll see a fourth generation uh, out there soon. And uh, yeah, they're uh, keen and looking forward to it. Awesome, mate. Thanks for your time and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thank you very much, Rusty. Appreciate it. Well, that was an interesting chat with Daniel Reed, a third generation racer, and certainly a guy who probably thinks a lot more than he says. He's a hard guy to get a word out of, but once you get him talking, uh, it is fascinating to listen to him. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and make sure you do tell your friends and share it on social media because everybody that hears about it helps us out. We'll see you next time on the Race Wide Open podcast. Bye for now.